Thank you for not leaving and for uh, sticking it out. Our next session will be in Romans 13. You can open your Bibles there. Steve asked me where this uh, series came from, and the answer is at my own church, Emmanuel Bible Church. We're in Virginia, in the D.C. area, though. We were closed for, for COVID, uh, and uh, so the government, you know, when all the churches closed, um, we talked with a couple other churches, and there were me and a few of my friends at two other churches in the neighborhood. We decided we were going to stay open regardless, and we stayed open one more Sunday, one extra Sunday. And then, um, then we relented and closed uh, and stayed closed for about six weeks. And then after uh, Easter, we decided we were going to reopen again. And there were different contributing factors to that, one of which was uh, some of the government, um, people who worked for the government that were in charge of our country's COVID response were at Emmanuel Bible Church. And they were encouraging us to reopen. And so it was this tension of like, clearly it's against the, the law uh, for us to be closed. Although there was a lot of skepticism about that too. I mean, is an executive order from a governor constitute a law uh, duly passed under emergency powers? That, I mean, every state's going to be different. So there were all the legal arguments that were like, I'm not really sure it's a law we're breaking. Um, but then we had compounded by the fact that government workers who were in charge of our country's COVID response were telling us you should reopen. So that made it hard to say, like, we're violating the, what the government wants when it's the government people who are wanting it uh, to have us reopen. And that, and also the Fairfax County Police, um, f- which we have a great relationship with. This is during the lockdowns. You know, you weren't supposed to travel without a, uh, you know, a valid reason or whatever. So the police department, for whatever reason, was staging in our church parking lots. They had, like, the horse crew there, like the mounted patrol and the accident reconstruction team. And the SWAT team and all these like the police agencies I didn't even know existed that had like big trailers and horses and stuff. Uh, they were staging in our parking lot every, every uh, day through, throughout COVID. So we start coming back to church again and there's like all the police in our parking lot. And, uh, you know, they would say hi and they'd come get coffee. And um, so we realized maybe this isn't like full on rebellion against the government. Not saying that it had been, we wouldn't have opened, but also we started to get these little subtle signs like, the police officers drinking coffee and the uh, Secret Service hanging out with the donuts. And we're like, maybe we're not overthrowing the government. <laughs> um, so that made me start to work through this, uh, this thinking in our mind. And I, I know every state was different. In Virginia, the lockdowns got much more extreme. I think in a sense it might be opposite of California where they were extreme at the beginning and sort of maybe relented. In Virginia, they were kind of loosey-goosey at the beginning. And then as our a governor election approached, um, which is, you know, off years from the presidential election, uh, it got much more um, extreme, the, the lockdowns did, and the rules for schools and, and everything. So that made us start to wrestle through uh, what was clearly a political agenda happening from our, our governor, um, how we're supposed to relate to it, and to show it was a political agenda. The moment the, the governor election was over, all those rules went away, um, like in a minute. Um, So uh, it made me start to wrestle through what is the right response of Christians uh, to government and are there limits to what the government commands. So that's the background for where this series came from. Um, let uh, Let me pray for us and then we'll start the real, the real talk. God, we're grateful for your word. We know it is living and active and it conforms our worldview to your worldview. Um, and so we pray that that would happen today by an uh, working of your Holy Spirit in our hearts to do that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a British expression that I absolutely love. Uh, no matter which party you vote for in the election, the government always wins. <laughs> um, and it's so true. Uh, it doesn't matter if you vote for the Democrats or the Republicans. Come January, whatever date it is, uh, the government will take its seat in power. And you, you immediately want to throw them out again. Uh, that's true. And the government does ridiculous things while they're in office. Uh, I chose uh, what I thought was a ridiculous analogy a few years ago when I first was working on this topic, only to be told later that it's not ridiculous. And there are actually those in the government that are proposing legislation 
um, exactly what I'm about to describe. So know that when I invented this, what I thought was hypothetical, it was so far-fetched it would never happen, but don't be surprised if one day the Babylon Bee headlines become reality. (laughs) Imagine a government uh, law regulating what color car you should drive. Uh, They have discovered that black cars can magnify heat, whereas white cars uh, absorb them. And so this idea of black cars around increases your air conditioning output in your cars and has a cumulative effect of uh, increasing the surface temperature in metropolitan areas, contributing to global warming. So the government decides we're banning black cars. uh, And to make it simple, you may only drive a white car. And let's pretend that the automotive industry gets behind such a rule. They would be excited for it because it will increase sales of cars, right? It would make many of your cars illegal. At the very least, it'll make you have to get paint jobs on your cars. And so the the paint manufacturing industry, which is headquartered in the Midwest and the Rust Belt and has a large political influence, they're excited about it. And so a bunch of unlikely allies are formed in Congress and the thing gets pushed through and... uh, The president signs it into law, and so bam, now you're required to drive a white car. Um, Are you required by God to obey that law? That's the question. Uh, Are you sinning then if Monday morning rolls around and you dodge out in your black minivan? (laughs) Uh, You have a red Miata convertible, as one might do in Uh, Southern California. Uh, Are you sinning if you dodge out in your red Miata convertible or your black Nissan Quest minivan, which you love and cherish so much as a member of your own family? I'm speaking here of my own experience. (laughs) I want to show you today from Romans 13 a way to think through that kind of scenario. Romans 13 is perhaps the most clear passage in the New Testament that describes a Christian's relationship to government. I'll give you an outline as we go through it, Christians and the government. Um, Romans 13 is interesting in this regard because we all understand that God designs Christian ethics to to transcend nations. The New Testament, as it competes, uh, as it teaches on ethics, is not giving you structures that work inside of only one legal system. The way the New Testament commands ethics as you think about government applies equally in Uh, a monarchy as it does in a democracy. It applies equally in California as it would in Virginia, as it would in Bhutan. Uh, They're they're ethics that transcend national boundaries and borders in political systems and thought. And that's the nature of the New Testament. That being said, Paul is writing to Romans. He's writing to those that are not just under Caesar's authority, but particularly to those who are under Nero's authority. And particularly to those who are not just under Nero's authority, like those in Israel might be with their own history of rebellion and revolt. But in Rome, these are people who work in Caesar's household, you learn at the end of Philippians. These are people that are engaged in the government at governmental levels. That's who he's writing to in the book of Romans. So he's not talking abstractly here. He's talking to specific people in a specific political environment, but he's giving them an ethical system that will exist and apply outside of that particular circumstance. So that makes the language of Romans 13 so profound and uh, as you would expect in an inspired word of God. I'll give you four headings as we go through this. If you're taking notes, each of these four headings will have subpoints under them. So you can give yourself a little space, but I just want you to chart this out. I want to show you what Romans 13 commands is the imperative. I want to show you what Romans uh, 13 gives us the reason behind the imperative. And I'm building a logical argument here. And then I want to show you what it says the purpose of those, uh, uh, of those reasons are. And then finally, what the limits on them are. So that's the trajectory of where we're going. Uh, it begins in Romans 13, verse 1, with let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And this is the uh, imperative. Um, it goes on to say, There's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good, and you'll receive his approval, for he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain. He's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath and the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection. There's the imperative again. One must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God 
attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to him, taxes are owed. Revenue to him, revenue is owed. Respect to him, respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. So first we see our imperative here. And our imperative, is, there's really two in here, to be subject and to pay taxes. So before you unpack those imperatives, and again you see be subject to in verse 1, be subject to them, and then you see it again uh, in verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection. Before you drill down on that, it's worth asking, to whom are you supposed to be subject to? Uh, Who is this requirement given to you? You're not supposed to be subject to every government in the world uh, any more than a wife would be expected to be subject to every husband in the world. There's certain kind of relationships that limit these kind of commands. Now, no one's really arguing that you're supposed to be subject to every government in the world. But when you think of our country's founding, this was a very particular kind of question. Uh, be subject to, to who? To what government? What government are you required to subject yourself to? Are you required to subject yourself to any government that claims authority over you? What's the limiting principle? And I mention this because people often uh, ask, you know, if the American Revolution was sinful because the command of the Bible is to be subject to the government. Uh, and the question is, what government are you supposed to be subject to? What government were the colonists supposed to be subject to? Does Romans 13 provide additional insight into what government has authority over you? And I think that it does. Uh, It gives you two little headings here, those that are uh, checking evil, those that are bearing the sword, and those that are collecting taxes. That's your government. The people that are defending you, the people that are checking evil and promoting good, and the people that are taking your taxes from you. You think to America's founding, that most certainly was not the, the British government. Um, the British government is, you know, ocean away and generations away from uh, the collecting of taxes. They were trying to, of course, and there was revolt at a popular level. Nobody was asking the pastors should we revolt. People were doing it on their own. Um, but there's just a certain limitation to a government that tries to check evil and collect taxes from people that aren't under their authority. Uh, I had an epiphany when I went to this uh, colonial museum in Williamsburg, Virginia, and which is you know one of the oldest. Uh, we talked last night about the cities in New Mexico are older, but in Virginia terms, this is an old place, Colonial Williamsburg, and they had a map in there that uh, Washington used when he went out um, east to, or when he went out west to confront the Indians and try to evict the French from the Ohio River Valley. And perhaps you've seen this map. It's in a lot of uh, you know homeschooling textbooks. It's the 13 colonies, but they have many of the colonies. They just have lines, borders that extend infinitely west. They don't even know where the Pacific Ocean is. Just Virginia keeps on trucking forever and ever and ever. You draw those lines out, and Bakersfield would be under the authority of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, we fall, fall right in there. Um, but that's not reasonable. And, of course, if you know the story of George Washington, he, he goes to the, the fort there where he has his confrontation with the, the French and the Indians. Uh, it did not go well for him or his men. But he presents them with the map showing that what the area they're in is actually under the authority of the British government. And you could imagine showing a map (laughs) to a bunch of Indians that shows them as a subsidiary of the British government because of a map that was drawn 75 years earlier. Uh, The kind of laughs would be induced by that. Like, oh, I'm sorry, you have a map. Okay, well, (laughs) I'll fall in line then. (laughs) You remember in the first Gulf War where when Iraq uh, invaded Kuwait, which provoked the war, one of the first things the Iraqi government did is republish maps that showed Kuwait as a province of of Iraq. Well, it's going to have the same effect on American soldiers there. They get there and, like, you know, to try to liberate uh, uh, Kuwait, and they're confronted with a map that shows Kuwait as part of Iraq. They're not going to say, oh, you know, President Bush had it all wrong, (laughs) our bad. Uh, You updated Google Maps, so it must be a legitimate government. (laughs) The government that you're subject to is the one that has oversight of you, that's checking your sin, that's promoting good behavior, and to whom you pay taxes to. But those are the commands. When you're wrestling with Romans 13, to be subject to the government. And it defines being subject to that by praying for them, of course, uh, by showing them the honor that they are due. We'll talk about why they're due honor in a minute. 
and for basically being a good citizen. This is not something confined to Romans 13. Peter teaches the same concept. Paul teaches a good con- the same concept elsewhere. You're supposed to pray for your government, he tells Timothy. You're supposed to be a quiet worker. Work quietly with your hands. Stay out of trouble and mind your own business, okay? Uh, because the gospel will go through the world quicker that way. It'll go through the world easier that way if you just keep your head down, keep your mouth open about the gospel to people, but just be a good citizen. You know, let, let the government know you're not actually trying to overthrow the government. You really aren't. You're just trying to have a living and a family and feed them like the four things we talked about this morning. That's all you're trying to do and also preach the gospel to anyone who will listen. And of course, governments don't like that because it presents a loyalty to somebody outside of them. And governments normally don't respond well to people who say, you know, I'm a good citizen, but I worship Jesus more than the government. That provokes them in lots of ways, but that's just the reality of being a Christian in a fallen world. So you're supposed to be subject to the government pay your taxes to them. Uh, that leads to the reason behind it. And there's three reasons given in this passage. There's the theological reason, the prudential reason, and the moral reason. Um, theological, prudential, and moral. The theological reason, is, it says, is that God instituted government. Look at verse 1 again. There's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, when I say theological, I mean by this providential in a sense, that God providentially is in control of all of the governments of the world. Uh, He's in control of who wins the elections, who loses the elections. He's in control of the kings and when they, they rise and fall. I mean, does God appoint the days of your life? Yes, of course he does. Is that true for kings? Yes, of course it is. And so when a king dies, God is sovereign over that day in his providential control of all things. Now, you need a theological distinction in your mind between God's permissive will and his explicit will, between what God providentially allows and what he commands. And that's outside of my scope today to really develop, except just every Christian kind of needs those basic training wheels of understanding there's two forms of the will of God. Uh, The easiest way to explain it is God's word commands you not to murder but God's providential will, uh, his, his secret will, in other words, was that Jesus Christ would be murdered. You know, God commands you not to sell your brother into slavery, but he uses providentially and sovereignly Joseph being sold into slavery to bring the, the Jews into Egypt and to ultimately win their freedom. So there are lots of things in God's providential will that contradict his explicit or his perfect or his um, declarative w- will. You just need those two categories and understand that God is providentially sovereign over things that he morally rejects and will judge people for doing. Jesus says to Judas, you know, it's written that you're going to betray me. Woe to the person who does it. But what you do, do quickly. You know, it's just kind of a, a contradiction. You could use that word, a paradox or uh, an antinomy. You can use all kinds of different words for it. But it's kind of at the foundation of our faith, that God is providentially sovereign over things that he forbids you from doing. He bans adultery, and yet David sleeps with Bathsheba and produces uh, those in the line of Christ. I said I wasn't going to flesh that out, but that was an accident right there. Um, So you understand that God providentially is sovereign even over wicked and evil kings. But I think as you drill down in verse 1 here, he doesn't simply mean that God's providentially sovereign over all rulers. He literally means that the only authority that exists in the universe comes from God. That God is the source of all authority. Anybody with any kind of derived authority is deriving their authority from God. Nobody in the universe, even the most powerful king, Nobody in the universe has authority except that God grants it to them. All, just like life, we understand that with life. All life comes from God. If you have life, it's on loan from God. All authority comes from God. If you have authority, it's on loan from God. Your life will be called back by God. He will bring it back to himself and he will judge you for how you used it. He will reward you for the deeds done in the flesh, both good and and empty, 1 Corinthians 5 says. The same is true with authority. God grants authority to people to use in their life. He, he grants it to parents. Uh, in a sense, he grants it to husbands. In a sense, he grants it to government. He will call all that authority back and will judge people for how they used it and will punish those who used it wickedly. That doesn't mean the authority didn't come from him. The very basis of the fact it comes from him is why he gets to judge it. 
This speaks of his absolute sovereignty over human affairs, his absolute control over all things that happen in this world, and his absolute perfection and lack of toleration for sin that even unjust, ungodly governments will be held into account. This goes back when he says there's no authority except from God. This goes back to the Tower of Babel. I mean, where did nations come from? We talked about that this morning. They weren't there in the garden. God designed a concept of nations instituted in Genesis 9, confirmed in Genesis 10 and 11 with the table of nations and the Tower of Babel that would scatter into the world. This is God's design. People did not invent nations. God did. And so it's very clear that all authority, even national authority, comes from him. That's really a stunning reality um, that it's commanded by the way, we're talking of an unjust, Nero is a terrible king. Like imagine a political leader who is, you know, jailing people, persecuting people, outlawing Christianity, burning Christians just on, on the stakes in his courtyard because he likes the way they look when they're on fire. Uh, that's the king that Peter said, that Paul says, obey and submit to. He's collecting your taxes. That's who he's talking about. It's not a hypothetical situation. Some Americans get pretty uppity about this kind of thing with, you know, the government passed, you know, a 15.5% income tax and, you know, anything above 14% is taxation without representation and is theft. And so I'm not submitting to my government, by golly, that 1.5% income tax rate. I'm out. (laughs) And Paul and Peter are both dealing with a king that's lighting Christians literally on fire in his courtyard. Um, And he recognizes that authority even comes from God. It's a misuse of that authority. But nevertheless, Nero was sent by God. And he was sent by God not to be evil, but to do good. So first, all authority is instituted by God. Uh, One little comment on this one more, verse 4. Notice in verse 4 it says, All that authority, that king, is God's servant for your good. That's just a verse that's so common for Christians. We just... Read it, and we've heard it a thousand times. We know it. But do you understand how zero of Paul's readers would have not been offended by this verse? I mean, the Jewish readers would have said, are you telling me that pagan, wicked, terrible Nero king is under God's authority? How dare you? And the Gentile readers and Nero himself would have read this and go, wait, are you calling me a servant? How dare you call me a servant? I'm the king. I'm not a servant. And Paul equally offends both parties by saying that wicked Gentile king is from God and also wicked Gentile king. You're just his servant, man. Don't get all, you know, uppity towards people. Don't get all hoity-toity. You're just, a, the word servant is, is diakono. We get the word deacon from it. Paul's dismissing Nero and Caesar's throne itself as merely a servant. You know, he uses the same word for the person who busses the tables, Are you a busser? Are you the emperor? Same thing in God's economy. It doesn't really matter, my friend. Um, So you can see how this would be offensive. Well, the first reason Paul says you need to obey the government is because God's providentially and sovereignly in control of it. Second reason is you could go to jail. That's a a good second reason, isn't it? And he says in verse 3, Would you have no fear of the one in authority? Do what's good. You'll receive his approval. He's God's servant, but he'll punish those who don't do it. Verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad conduct. He says they don't bear the sword in vain. Later on, they don't bear the sword in vain. I mean, they bear, it's, the sword is a metonym there. It's a word that's standing in for something else. It's a metonym for jail, even for capital punishment. So if you don't obey God, you could go to jail. So Paul's building an argument here. Obey the government because God established them. Secondly, obey the government because if you don't, you go to jail. And third... Obey the government because of your conscience. Your conscience is given by God. Don't ignore it. 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10 both tell Christians to not go against their conscience. Your conscience convicts you of sin? Then repent. Don't violate your conscience, even if your conscience is wrong. And your conscience is always wrong by convicting. You know, so if your conscience tells you, hey, this is sin, don't do that thing until you sort out your conscience, even if your conscience is messed up. If your conscience is quiet, uh, well, your conscience perhaps should be activated. Like sometimes your conscience excuses something that's sinful. You know, it's something is sin and you should be convicted of sin, but your conscience isn't active right there. That's a defective conscience. But if something is 
vexing your conscience and convicting you of sin, you're supposed to listen to your conscience, including as it relates to government. Government commands you to do something, and your conscience convicts you if you break the government's rules, then listen to your conscience. Now, why is this true? Why is this true? Well, that goes to the purpose. That goes to the purpose. There's two purposes in this command, to reward good and punish evil. This goes all the way back to Genesis 8 and 9, doesn't it? From this morning, the government exists to check evil. Part of the way it checks evil is it has reward for doing good. The reward, by the way, in Romans 13 is just the government lets you do your thing. Government lets you do a Christian. Um, Government is God's servant for your good. The good the government gives you is all the things that God had designated for you, the joy of family, the joy of food, the freedom to worship, your human life. But if you do wrong, he says, the government does not bear the sword in vain. The government will punish evil. Verse 4, he's a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And this is true of good and bad governments. It's just a simple truism. If you do good, you get a reward. If you do bad, you get the sword. That's the simple point. When you do evil things, you are by and large going to be punished by the government, and then you get punished by God. And Paul, remember, is not talking about Christian governments He's talking about not democratic governments. He's talking not about enlightened countries with progressive tax rates and social safety nets. He's talking about Nero. He's talking about Herod, who slaughtered the newborns in Palestine. He's talking about wicked pagan governments that check evil. Our own country's experience bears this out. You go back again to the first and second Gulf Wars. It seems pretty clear anybody who's, who's served in the military in Iraq comes back with basically the same testimony that it was a much better place under Saddam Hussein because he checked evil. You get rid of the one guy checking evil in the country and you have evil everywhere. And that's, that's true. Probably the same thing might be testified in Afghanistan. Uh, there's basic, even in the evil, wicked country, the evil, evil wicked government is still checking evil um, because it does, government doesn't like competition, right? <laughs> And they check people are doing evil because they want the corner on the market often. That's still Paul's point, though, that even bad governments check people who do evil. And this might be less apparent inside of a country, but it's certainly apparent outside of the country. Nations check nations. A government grows too big, other nations check them. It doesn't even fall to Christian ethics. I think sometimes people misunderstand by asking, is a war just or not? What did the Christian pastors say or what did the ethicists say? It doesn't even matter. God providentially makes the world in the way that when one country gets too big and too pugnacious, other countries will attack it. That's just the way the world works. And it's always been that way. You know, Napoleon got away with a lot, but when he tried to invade Mexico and take over Mexico, then even the U.S. got involved. You know, that's how the world functions. The, the England tries to rule, they had the saying that the sun never sets in the British Empire. They tried to rule the whole world. Well, what's going to happen? Other nations are going to rise up and check them. When Alexander the Great went to war against the Persian Empire, it didn't matter if the Persian Empire was more democratic than the Greek Empire. It didn't matter at all. It just mattered that two nations were trying to grow around the world and eventually they'd fight each other and one would win. Countries check each other. I mentioned this last night, but C.S. Lewis had this ordered approach to this in The Four Loves, where he notes that Christians can even fight on opposite sides of the war and have a likeness because they're both serving the same function. Both sides in a war are often checking each other. Both, it's not that one nation is good and the other is bad. Both are often evil. They're just checking each other. Another way of saying it, you can have prosecutors and public defenders and they can both be Christians and they can both be friends and neither of them is sinning. Neither of them is sinning. Although I did hear Pastor MacArthur yesterday in a Q&A, somebody asked him a question I'd never heard him ask before, which is, I'm going to law school, would it be better to be a public defender or a prosecutor? And he said, oh, a prosecutor, because you always want to bring an active case and you never want to be looking for loopholes. Just as a matter of Christian living. So that, that, that resonates with me. Nevertheless, C.S. Lewis's point is you can be both a prosecutor and a public defender uh, and still be serving the Lord in the Romans 13 kind of sense. Notice verse 4 says that nations avenge or governments avenge evil. That word avenge is fascinating. It's a word from the Old Testament, uh, the avenger of blood. It's that word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, if somebody murdered a family member, your family would select somebody to chase that murderer down and avenge the blood of the one who died. That's Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 19. That's the word in the New Testament that gets picked up for God being an avenger, and he gives it to governments. 
This is an Old Testament Torah concept. God takes that concept and gives it to the world governments to chase people down. So somebody murders someone in your family, it's not up to you to appoint an avenger of blood. God did it through the government. By the way, that word is also used in 1 Thessalonians 4 for God avenging those who are wronged sexually. God will avenge those who are exploited sexually. He will be their avenger. Well, here in Romans 13, Paul says the government does that. The government does that. The government will check evil and suppress evil. We live in a world where the, the government will often hate the church. That's the reality. The government hates the church because the gospel isn't compatible with the kind of ethics and worldview the government puts forward. Nevertheless, even in those kind of places, the government still acts as one who checks evil. That's so important for Christians because if you think about Romans 12, what's the main point at the end of Romans 12? Turn the other cheek. Don't revenge wrongdoers. All right, so somebody comes, think of it very practically. This is a nice neighborhood for this church. I can tell by the gates outside. Very nice neighborhood. <laughs> All right, so somebody comes, says, your church, I'm going to steal the radio from your car. It breaks in the cards. So what's the Christian ethic to that? Are you supposed to appoint an avenger and chase the dude down? Are you supposed to follow him to the pawn shop and get the radio back at the pawn shop and make sure that guy goes to jail? No. You're, as a person, supposed to turn the other cheek. But that's not going to work very, that's not even a practical approach very long. I mean, imagine what the second thief would do. The first thief says, oh, these people, I sell the radio and they're like, oh, brother, take the car, take the whole car. (laughs) That's not very practical. If you want to have the Romans 12 ethic, you need the Romans 13 government. If you want to have the Romans 12, I love my neighbor, you need the Romans 13, no, the Bakersfield police will come and actually arrest the dude. That's the only way for the Romans 12 ethic to function in a society is if the Romans 13 government arrives. You need both. And some Christians work in both worlds, right? Some Christians are in law enforcement. And so you recognize if, if it's your house that is burglared, you're supposed to you know, love your enemy and turn the other cheek, but, but you're going to call your partner who's going to come in and chase the guy down. And if you're on duty and it's your neighbor's house is burglared, you would expect him to, you know, turn the other cheek and live out that ethic because you're going to show up with a gun and handcuffs and the power of law behind you. You need both of those to have a functioning society. And people mess this up all the time with Christian pacifism that is always turn the other cheek, which results in just anarchy or a government intervention where there is, you know, no mercy or grace, only law and justice, which produces a totalitarian society. It's the Christian ethic that balances both. And they're right here in chapter 12 and 13, and they're balanced by knowing that the government has the job to enforce both of those things. There's a thousand hypotheticals that you could ask about that, but that will be, uh, I'll have time for those questions in the millennial kingdom. All right, and then thirdly, limits to this. Do you always obey the government at all times? Are there any limits to this? And I would say, yes, there are limits, and I'm going to give you a couple of those limits. First, obviously, you disobey the government if it positively commands you to sin. If the government says you have to go steal, you don't steal. Now, everybody agrees on that. Secondly, you have to obey the government if the government is telling you to ignore a command, ignore something positive that God commands. A most obvious example from the COVID era of the government can, you know, prohibits you from doing something God commands, like congregating for worship. You have the freedom to ignore that kind of commands. And then thirdly, if the government uh, gives a law that the purpose of the law contradicts the mandate of government. And the government is given to check evil, but does a law that promotes evil. That goes against the government's purpose. God describes the purpose of government back in Genesis 8 and when the government does things that are out in Genesis 9 and if the government does things that are outside of that purpose, you don't have to obey them. So with these three uh, exceptions up on the screen, it's worth asking, and I'll give you a fourth exception in a second. Before we get into the fourth one, let's go back to the car analogy. The government says you can only drive a white car. Cannot drive your black Quest minivan or your red Miata sports car. So let's think through this for a second. Is it sinful to drive a white car? No. And so you're like, the first checkbox doesn't really apply. Does the Bible command you to drive a black car? Also no. So the second box doesn't really apply. But the third box, 
Is regulating the color of your car one of the purposes God gave the government? Now, of course, government agents will try to extrapolate and say, no, it is actually good for the environment, which will help the food source. So we are actually, uh, or helping life by making you know, sure your grandchildren have a country to live in with less global warming. That's why the white car. But I think a reasonable person would look at that and say that, no, those dots don't connect. I'm not buying it. In which case, you're not sinning if you drive the black minivan. You're not sinning. If you drive, even though the government says no black minivans for you, if you go out and you drive it tomorrow, I would say you're not sinning, even though you're breaking a command of the government. That doesn't mean that you should go drive your black minivan, though, because remember, there are three reasons to obey the government given in Romans 13. One, because God appointed them as the source of authority, but here they're acting outside of their authority. So that first reason does not apply. They say you can't drive a black minivan, and you say government's a source of authority. What you're doing is not in line with God's authority, so I don't have to obey you. But there was two other reasons, remember? What was the second one? If you can't do the time, don't do the crime, my friend. <laughs> so you're looking at your car, and you got your, you know, your white Ford Taurus there and your black minivan, and you're like, I'm just trying to go to the grocery store. I don't want to go to jail. So you can go ahead and drive the white car to the grocery store. It's fine. It's fine because you don't want to go to jail. But maybe your husband's at work. And you're like, ah, freedom. (laughs) I don't mind jail. But does your conscience convict you? As you look at your white Taurus and your black minivan and your hemming and hawing, you're like, hmm. You know, it's not a just law. It's not from God's authority. I can drive the black car and it's fine. And I don't mind going to jail. The police hardly ever enforce this anyway. NBD, not a big deal. But as you put your key in the, the, the door and you go sit down and you start it up, you're like, ooh, my conscience bothers me on this. Well, your conscience is wrong. You can drive the car with a clean conscience. But at that moment when your conscience bothers you, you can relent and go back to driving the white car. Now, this is not the normal approach that American evangelicals had pre-COVID to this. Most American evangelicals pre-COVID look at Romans 13, and they only stop at the first one. They say, if the government commands it, you have to do it unless it is commanding sin, actively commanding sin. But that's not, a very, that's not historically the way Protestants have engaged with obeying the government. That is the way Americans have engaged with obeying the government for lots of reasons that I find historically fascinating. I mean, why did Americans come up with this whole standard of the only time to disobey the government is if they command sin? I mean, has a government ever said, okay, here's a law. We recognize it's sinful, but we're passing it anyway. I mean, that's never happened. That exception clause, unless they command sin, is almost irrelevant. It almost never happens. And by the way, that's a level of obedience that only God is owed. Human institutions are not owed that level of obedience. You obey God at all times unless he commands you to sin, which he would never do. It's the same kind of logic that would be extrapolated to government, and it is too much deference to government. Government is not God. I think it comes from our country's past with slavery. It comes from this idea that people are enslaved, and, uh, which is immoral and unethical and sinful. And you had theologians that were trying to excuse it by saying, listen, the government can mandate you know, slavery and treat human life as property as long as it's not commanding them to sin. You have no grounds for trying to overthrow the government. It was a way of excusing something that was immoral in our society, and it turned over to become an actual Christian ethic that people parrot all the time. When you chase it down to the 15 and 1600s, there was a divergence. You know, in Catholicism, of course, there was no conscientious objection. Before the Reformation, you obeyed the government no matter what because the government was literally established by the Pope. It was the Holy Roman Empire, which again was neither Holy Roman and barely an empire, but the emperor was established by the Pope and you had to obey him or you ran afoul of the church. So after the Reformation, Luther in the Augsburg Confession, the Augsburg Confession, which is in the stream of Lutheranism, says something similar, that you obey the government unless the government commands you to sin, which is totally the kind of thing the German Lutherans would say because they were replacing the Catholic Church with their own government. But that is not the way that Calvin went in Geneva. That is not the way the Puritans went at all. The Puritans added the nuance that you obey the government 
when the government is functioning like it is commanded to do, when the government is passing lawful commands, that's the language of the Westminster Confession, when the government passes lawful commands, you obey them. Well, to us, that sounds weird. If the government passes lawful commands, is that just the process the bill went through to become a law? No, not for the Puritans. What they meant by lawful command is, does a law fit with what God designed the purpose of government to accomplish? That makes it lawful. The command about the color of car you're driving would be an unlawful command because it's outside of God's scope for government. And this is, there's so many different quotes that I could choose to give you uh, to back this up. But Thomas Manton, Puritan writing, uh, he died in 1677. He was a chaplain for Oliver Cromwell, who, you know, functioned in a sense as the prime minister of England, very much in the Puritan tradition, very much close to government, Thomas Manton was, um, he writes this, quote, Whatever God commandeth, I'm bound to do, even in secret, though it be to my absolute prejudice. But now submission to man may be performed by suffering the penalty, through the, though the obedience required be foreborn. And in some cases, a man may do contrary in private, where the thing is indifferent, and there's no danger of scandal or contempt of authority. Let me uh, NIV that up for you. If God commands you to do something, Thomas Manton's saying, you better obey him even if nobody's watching. If God tells you to do something, you obey even if it's just you and your closet. You better obey. That's it. No exceptions to that. Even though it'll hurt you. If God commands you to do something that will be to your absolute prejudice, he says something that will hurt you severely, you have no room to get out of it ever. In contrast, submission to government or to man that can be performed in lots of ways. And one way it can be performed is by suffering the penalty. You know, so the government says, to use the COVID example, you can't meet for, for church. Thomas Manton's arguing you can obey that by meeting for church and taking the penalty. What are they going to do? Throw you in jail? Go to jail then. That was Manton's argument. Long before uh, Martin Luther King Jr. took that same kind of ethic. This is coming from Thomas Manton, that you can actually obey government by disobeying them and just taking the punishment for your crime. And he says there's sometimes the obedience required could be foreborn. You can ignore what the government requires. And then sometimes you can even completely disobey it in private. Notice how it's the opposite of God. With God, you obey in private. Man's saying with some government rules, you can totally ignore them if nobody's watching. And why would he say you would obey that even in public then? Well, because it could be a danger of scandal or contempt. Talking about conscience. So Manton had the same understanding of Romans 13. You obey government if they're functioning in accordance with God's will and his commands. But if they're not, disobey them. That's fine. Unless you want to go to jail. And even then, if you're not going to go to jail, you could still obey them if your conscience bothers you. It'll bring contempt on the church. Calvin, much more succinctly writes, our obligation is to submit to laws and it looks to the purpose of the law, not to the laws themselves. That's very well worded. That, yeah, you have to obey all laws, but you have to go to the purpose of law and not the laws itself. And there's people who object to that and say, you know, why? Why would you? That just makes chaos. That means every Christian can decide what laws to obey and what laws not to obey. That would be moral anarchy. To which we respond with, yeah, that's fine. That's called a gray area in the book of in Romans 13 of all places. That's a gray area. You can make different decisions than other Christians. Some Christians can go drive their white, their white car and some can drive their black minivan. And you can be friends through Jesus Christ even though one of you drives a Ford and the other drives a Nissan. Can you imagine? <laughs> the fellowship of Christ transcends even that. Charles Hodge, the Presbyterian theologian, writes, when civil government may be and ought to be disobeyed is one which every man must decide for himself. In other words, there's no hierarchy. You don't, you don't look to John MacArthur to decide what laws to obey or disobey. Every individual can make their choices for themselves. I picked John MacArthur as like the Protestant Pope there was where I was going with that. No, that's how it worked out in my mind there. It's a matter of private judgment. An unconstitutional law or commandment is a nullity. No man sins in disregarding it. He disobeys, however, at his peril. Notice what he's meaning here, that if there's a law in the American parlance that's unconstitutional, if there's a law that is not in keeping with God's design of government or violates the freedoms that God gave people, you do not sin by ignoring it. But you might go to jail. 
you might disobey at your own peril. And then for, fourthly, the fourth category to disobey and as if government rules infringe on the church. There's all kinds of examples of this. Acts chapter 4, verse 17. Uh, in Acts chapter 4 is when the disciples were charged not to speak in Jerusalem any longer. And they go out, immediately they're released. They go out and preach again in Jerusalem. I just, I hope I get to see that scene in heaven. I don't know if you get reviews in heaven uh, of this life. But what an incredible scene where, you know, the, the group of leaders says, we, char- we strictly charge you. We beat you and strictly charge you. Don't preach in Jerusalem anymore. And they walk outside the door and they see them through their windows back on the streets preaching. All right, we have to bring them back in again. They haul them back in again. And the disciples say, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you can judge for yourselves. We don't care. In other words, you want to deliberate if we're guilty or not guilty, whatever. I'm not even going to defend myself. Find us guilty. We don't care. But we can only testify what we've seen and heard. (laughs) It says they couldn't figure out any other way to punish them, so they let them go, and they all left praising God for what had happened. That's just a really funny scene. Uh, In Acts chapter 5, they arrest them again. In Acts chapter 5, verse 28, they say, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name, and yet you fill Jerusalem with your teaching. Well, in Acts 4, they just said, you guys can sort this out on your own. We don't know. But Acts 5, they have their own answer better ironed out. In Acts 5, they say, we must obey God rather than men. Peter says that. I can imagine after they left in Acts 4, Peter was saying, oh, I should have said. (laughs) Way better. But he got another chance in Acts chapter 5. Ask yourself some basic questions. Is it sinful to preach in the streets of Jerusalem? No. Jerusalem is small. You go outside the city gate. Is it sinful to preach in the field outside the city? Also, no. Think of some biblical examples. Daniel is told not to, not to pray in public. What would you tell Daniel? Daniel, you're prime minister. You're in a powerful position of influence. Can't you obey that rule for 30 days, Daniel? The Bible doesn't command you to pray in public. For 30 days, go into your closet and close the door. Because if you disobey this, Daniel, bad things could happen to good Jews here if you disobey this. Like we could be in trouble. God puts you in a position of prime minister for such a time as this. So don't waste it by praying in public. Just pray in your closet. God who sees in private will hear your prayer. You, you can just get by for 30 days ignoring the command. I and mean, that would be... If you gave that advice to Daniel, that wouldn't even be terrible advice. That's very prudent advice. And what would Daniel do with that advice? And pray where everybody can see. I mean, this is, the, this is the boldness of him. Is he sinning by doing that? No, he's not sinning. And I think back to the COVID restrictions and how easy it was for people to say, hey, just listen to the restrictions for 14 days. You remember 14 days? And of course, that's where everybody signed up, right? 14 days. We're like, of course, pastors like, of course, we'll close our churches for 14 days. Of course we will. We're not trying. We're trying to live, you know, with a clean conscience in society. We'll close for 14 days. And then it became a month. And then it became six weeks. And we're like, uh, wait a minute. And you have well many people saying, oh, just, just obey for 30 more days. The arm around Daniel. Daniel, just for 30 days, brother. 30 days. After all, no authority comes from, every authority that's here comes from God, exists at his will. Well, in that area of history, in the Romans 13 area of history, Paul says, listen, obey government when they're telling you to do things that God gave the government to tell you to do. They're defending your food. They're defending your, your, your freedom to worship. They're defending your family. They're protecting human life. They're, you know, punishing crime. Obey them. Because that's what God made them do. But they start telling you what color a car to drive. You can decide. I have a blog that I haven't blogged in a long time, but I call it the Cripplegate. It's the name of my blog, and I'm pretty happy for that name. There's some garden in England that owns Cripplegate.com, and they won't sell it to me. So my blog is thecripplegate.com. I'm, I'm bugged by the the. <laughs> they asked for 500 bucks, and I didn't care at the level of 500 bucks to buy it from them. Now I kind of regret it. The Cripplegate is named after a place in 17th century England where under King Charles, they banned uh, Christians from meeting in church unless the, uh, they would abide by the Act of Uniformity. The Act of Uniformity told pastors what passages of Scripture to read, 
structured what they were allowed to pray for. And if pastors didn't submit to that, they were expelled from their pulpits and banned from their ministry. It was then followed by what was called the Five Mile Act. The Five Mile Act passed in 1665, uh, banned pastors from doing any ministry publicly within five miles of a church they were expelled from for not following the act of conformity. Do you follow that logic? So the government says you cannot, and the key issue was praying for soldiers that were going off to the Civil War. So the government says you cannot pray for them unless it's coming up in the, you know, the Book of Common Prayer, and you have to preach according to this liturgy. And many pastors, the Puritan pastors, were like, well, we're out. Not every Puritan pastor. Some Puritan pastors, like, you know, Sibs and others, would say, you know, it's not sinful to have prayer structured by the government. We'll pray for other things in church. It's not sinful to pray for these things. But most of the Puritans were like, it's not an issue as if that's actively sinful or not. It's an issue of saying, the government cannot regulate what we're praying and singing and reading at church. They can't do it. And then they say, okay, you can't do any ministry within five miles of your house now or five miles of your own parish. Is it a sin to preach 5.1 miles away from your house? I drove more than five miles to get here today. Am I sinning? Of course not. You have freedom to live as close to your church or as far away from your church. I talked to somebody who drove 100 miles away that, to get here. That would be totally cool in the Puritan England. <laughs> the king would be okay with that. It's not a sin to travel that far to preach or to pray. So the idea of you obey God unless they compel you to sin is woefully inadequate for in dealing with those kind of restrictions. No, a better approach is to say the government can't tell pastors how far away to live from their church. Governments can't tell you when to pray. And so the Puritan pastors that got expelled would meet at a gate in England. The gate was called the Cripple Gate. That's why it's called that. It's the name comes from hundreds of years earlier, but they met at the Cripple Gate to pray for the soldiers going to war and to hear sermons every morning from those that had been expelled from their churches. This is not a new doctrine. It's not something that comes out of COVID. I'm telling you the Cripple Gate story just so you know that when I say you don't need to obey the government when they tell you silly, inconsequential things, that's not a new doctrine. This is a Puritan doctrine. This is a Puritan approach to government. They are owed allegiance, they are owed submission, they are owed your taxes, but they are not owed obedience to laws that are outside of what God has given them to do. God, we're grateful for the ethic that your word gives us, guides our thoughts, our lives, and our attitudes. We pray that you would use it to make us more like your son. We recognize our hearts are rebellious, of course. We <laughs> fancy freedom for ourselves that you haven't given us. Um, we depict ourselves as under, better understanders of right and wrong than we, than we probably are. And yet we also know that you've given us your spirit. And for all those who have faith in Christ, we need no one to teach us, but your spirit convicts us of sin and compels us towards righteousness. We also know you command love and charity towards those that make different decisions in these areas than we do. And so, of course, that's our greatest desire is to love our brothers and sisters in Christ more than we even love our own country and government. We love each other. That's the, the right order to that, Lord. We know that. You called us to, to love you first and our neighbor second. So help us have wisdom as we, as we do that. I pray from this session today that this congregation would be strengthened in their resolve to obey you and to see the source of, of all laws coming from you and then to exercise the wisdom that you give us through your spirit as we navigate the choices in this fallen world, which will certainly get more and more complex in the years to come. We're thankful for your word that guides us. And it's in the name of your son we pray. Amen.